she was difficult to kill too. So that's why it takes him, you know, he goes from, graduates from beating her to strangling her and then picks up a knife. I'm Yardley. And I'm Zibby. And we're fascinated by true crime. So we invited our friends, detectives Dan and Dave, to sit down with us and share their most interesting cases. I'm Dan. And I'm Dave. We're identical twins, and we're detectives in small town USA. Dave investigates sex crimes and child abuse. Dan investigates violent crimes, and together we've worked on hundreds of cases, including assaults, robberies, murders, burglaries, sex abuse, and child abuse. Names, locations, and certain details of these cases have been altered to protect the privacy of the victims and their families. It's September 2015. Eric and Cindy, a couple in their early 60s, have been together for six years. Earlier that summer, they'd moved from San Francisco, California, to a modest but nice two-story townhome in the city center of Small Town, USA. Neither of them work. The townhome is paid for by the remains of a million-dollar inheritance that Eric had received some years back. That is, according to Eric. The two are also collecting disability. Eric claims that they'd moved away from San Francisco due to the high cost of basic living. And yet, he'd owned several motorcycles and cars, including a Porsche 911 back in California. Their new townhome is in a complex that consists mostly of college students, single-parent families, and retired people. Eric and Cindy's place is sparsely furnished. For example, in one of the rooms, a Home Depot cardboard box has been fashioned into a nightstand, and a small shelf does double duty as a TV table. It also appears that the two sleep in separate bedrooms, Eric in the master, and Cindy in the second bedroom on a blow-up twin-sized mattress. On the evening of the crime, A neighbor who lives in the apartment across from Eric and Cindy claims that she and her husband hear what she describes as an argument between a male and a female coming from an open window in Eric and Cindy's home. For the most part, she can't make out much of what's being said, but she is able to recall the female voice saying something like, okay, I'll leave then. About an hour later, the neighbor couple watch as the police and an emergency vehicle descend upon the complex. 911, what's the address of the emergency? Hi, um, uh, my name is and I, I've just murdered my girlfriend. How'd you do this? Excuse me? How, how did you do this? Um, I, I stabbed her to death. You stabbed her to death? With a knife, yeah. Choked her, yeah. Where's the knife now? Uh, what, where am I now? Where's the knife right now? Oh, it's in the kitchen sink. It's in the kitchen sink? Mm-hmm. I want you to stay on the line. I'm going to transfer you, okay? Okay. Hello. Hi, what's your name? My name is... And have you put the knife in the kitchen sink, you said? Yes, I have. Okay. Is there anybody else home? Uh, no, just us. Okay. We do have officers on the way. So there's nobody else home. Do you have any pets? 
No, no pets, nothing. Uh, I'll leave the door open. You can come in. I'll change my clothes. No, no, keep the clothes on, okay? Just stay with me on the phone. Just leave everything the way it is, okay? Okay, okay. Um, well, how long ago did this happen? Uh, about a half an hour ago. Okay. What happened? Why? What was the issue? Oh, we were arguing, and I, I lost it. I tried to choke her to death, and then I stabbed her to death. Okay. Have you ever had troubles before? Yeah. Okay, what's your d date of birth? Okay. And is she need, is there any way, is she actually dead, you think? I think she's dead, yeah. She's lying at the bottom of the stairwell and she hasn't moved in a long time. And do you know, can you tell me how to get there in the complex? Uh, yeah, you just go in. Do you go past the basketball courts? Yeah. And is it towards the yeah, back? Yeah, the basketball courts around the back. Uh -huh. Around the back. Okay. Mm -hmm. Can you go ahead and go outside? Okay. Want me to do that? Yeah. Can you stay on the phone with me? Sure. So and when the officers get closer, I might have you put the phone down, okay? And I'll have you show them your hands. Yeah, sure. Um, and when you, when you have you put the phone down, you'll just do what the officers tell you to do, okay? Right. Sure. Thank you. Are you outside okay. now? I'll go out there in just a second here. Okay. And what, what are you wearing today? I'm just wearing some shorts and Not a t-shirt. Shorts and a t-shirt? Okay. Are you yeah, gonna, let me know yeah. when you step out. Yeah, I'm sandals. Okay. And you're outside now? No, I am, yeah. Okay. He's outside now. Yeah. Do you see officers? Yeah, I see him. So when our officers arrive, Eric is outside on the phone. He's got a T-shirt and shorts, I believe. He's got his glasses on. He's covered in blood. And he's just on the phone with our dispatcher. So the responding units uh, take him into custody. He's cooperative. Um, they handcuff him, put him in a police car, and they go inside to check on the condition of any occupants inside. And that's where Cindy is discovered at the bottom landing of the stairwell that leads up to the second floor of this apartment. Dead. She's dead. Obviously dead. I remember reading that he had dragged her down the stairs and now she's lying on her back face up with her feet still on a couple of stairs. Right. So to paint a picture, uh, it was like she had been dragged down the stairs head first. So it's her her upper body and head and back that's on the landing fully while her legs are still haven't made it to the bottom of the landing. She's there, she's lying supine on her back and has sustained devastating trauma to her upper body, her throat, and uh, her face is swollen as if she had been beaten. And uh, she's clearly dead when, when we got there and clearly dead when our patrol officers got inside the house. He stabbed her in the throat. Many times. Wait a minute. So he beat her. Then did you say she, he tried to strangle her as well? And that's information from him where he tells our dispatcher that he had tried to strangle her and that it's difficult to strangle people. Uh, it actually takes quite a bit of effort to strangle someone to death. And so... At some point, he changed tactics and went and got a knife. My goodness. He's on the phone. The police roll up. What's 
he's compliant, but like, does anything happen there in that moment before he even gets to the interview room? Like, does he confess in the back of the police car? He actually does. He, he makes a couple of uh, incriminating statements. Um, our patrol officers uh, know that they need to advise him of his rights because he's talking and that they need to get him down to the police station away from that scene as soon as possible. So they transport him down to does the police he know station. She's he knows she's he dead. He knows she's dead. So probably soon after he's taken into custody, uh, the any officer who has any contact with the suspect or has anything to do with that crime scene is going to write a report to document their participation in the case. So one of our officers noted that the suspect asked our officer if she was still alive when they went in to check on her. And our officer tells him no. He says good, kind of smacks his lips together and says good again. Like there's no remorse. He's pretty cold. Like he's just glad he yeah, finished. Yeah, like, good, she's dead. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Dan, you were on this case too, right? Yeah, you know, it's just minding my own business at home, and now here I am at the police station, and I get sent to go in and collect evidence from this murder suspect. It was casual conversation in the room. It wasn't, uh, what have I just done, you know, anything like that. It, you know, he's, he's cooperative with me. He's polite. Uh, I ask him to move in different directions so I can have access to the different... Uh, areas of blood that are on his skin and on his shirt. And, you know, we collect all of his clothing. Um, Do you give him something to wear instead? Yeah. And I think we gave him a, a jumpsuit or a, like a paper suit. A paper suit. It's like coveralls, I guess. Yeah. That you would paint in. Um, he was cooperative. He let me photograph him. He didn't cause me any trouble. And we always had the understanding that I needed to document all these things before we took him to the hospital to have his wounds on his hands uh, evaluated by the staff there. And I remember reading, by the way, someone had asked him, did Cindy give you those cuts on your hand? And he said, no, no, it's from the knife. And, and he was adamant she didn't do anything. And I think I read a few times he was just really adamant in making sure that to say that she didn't do anything. Like she, she didn't this. provoke him. Snapped. She didn't yeah. deserve to be right. strangled and knifed in the throat. And that was actually to our sergeant who had a, you know, a pretty quick interaction with him, says, hey, did she do anything to cause the injury to your hand? He says, no, she didn't attack me. I attacked her. Um, asked about fighting back, that she wasn't fighting back, uh. um, but... She was difficult to kill, too. So that's why it takes him, you know, he goes from, graduates from beating her to strangling her and then 
picks up a knife. And it feels the way you guys are describing it. Like he's so matter of fact, he's not saying, man, she was difficult. That was so hard. It sucked. Like he was mad at her. It just seems so matter of fact. And like you were saying, small talk in the interview room, almost sort of like casual conversation. By the time that you have interaction with them, it's like they've come to terms with what just happened or they're in a state of shock, maybe. The emotional event for them was actually what happened. And so once they're removed from that scene or removed from that situation, they've got a little time to reflect. I don't know that I've ever come across a violent crime suspect or or a murder suspect who has been hysterical and um, inconsolable or difficult to deal with. Usually they're pretty calm. That's not how Hollywood tells it. Not in the movies. (laughs) Wow. You know, like usually someone does it and they're like in the interview room shaking. I I don't know what I've done, but it's an interesting point that you're making. Well, and I think if there was like true remorse, you would be able to see that and see that sincere. Uh, I've, I've been in situations talking to someone who just got basically caught committing a crime, uh, and they feign remorse, but they're, they're sorry they got caught. They're not sorry they committed the act. Sure. And it's different. Right. It's not genuine. So what do you, in the interview, um, do you ever find out what ticked them off? What we learned during this interview, and and especially after we go to the house after Dave completes writing the search warrant and getting it signed, is their relationship, although they live together and that they're presumably boyfriend and girlfriend, not married, they're living kind of separate lives at this point. They're roommates, basically. Because they sleep in separate bedrooms, and while they're sort of occasionally romantic, there's not a lot of love there. It seems. My recollection is he wanted to get in bed and and cuddle with her or or hold her for a little while, and she wasn't interested in that. It turns into a a verbal argument and graduates or evolves into where she's trying to push him out of the room and say, leave me alone, and that flips a switch for him. He becomes really upset, starts attacking her, physically assaults her, ends up, I don't know if he knocked her unconscious or what, but I remember looking up the stairs from where we found her all the way up the stairs in the the uh, the treads. You could see the drag marks from where there was blood and scuffs in the carpet, as well as where her hands had kind of splayed out away from her body, and you could see smears of blood going down the stairs to where we finally found her. So he, he beats her upstairs drags her down the stairs, uh, probably by the hair, because there was clumps of hair in the bedroom. Yeah, I remember seeing clumps clumps of bloody hair. Um, Drags her to the bottom of the stairs, tries to strangle her. He's unsuccessful, goes, and this graduates to where he grabs an actual weapon and grabs a, you know, it was a small ceramic orange paring knife, yeah. yeah. Which we found in the sink, which is exactly where he said we could find it. He said, no, I put it back in the sink. I remember taking photographs of it, still had blood on it. And that's where you find the wine bottles right next to the sink too. And that's got a blood smear on it. Red or white? It was white. Chardonnay. As if I needed another reason not to like Chardonnay. Um, You know, I'm hearing this and I'm going, that would take a lot of energy, like physical energy and emotional energy. And if I didn't know that they were in their 60s, I would have thought this was a crime of passion between two 20-year-olds. It seems like a lot. It it's seems, a lot. And it seems unusual, people of that age committing a crime that's so violent. Yeah. Well, I think 
you know, Dan went to the autopsy. I wasn't there for this autopsy, but um, the amount of stab wounds, and I don't have the particular number, you'd probably be able to speak to that more, but it looks, based on the crime scene photos where she's, you know, lying where she was located, uh, it looked like a frenzied attack. It's brutal. It's devastating. It's, uh, I can't imagine witnessing an attack like that because the injuries to her face and her skull uh, are very significant. Um, I I haven't seen that uh, in many cases where there's so much violence directed in one area of someone's body. And what was the autopsy like? I've never been to a pleasant autopsy. It's They're not fun. This one was interesting in that the the knife wounds to the chest and the neck, you couldn't totally discern how many. It was just like hamburger? It was, you know, crisscrossed, so much so that the medical examiner actually had to pull the skin taut on her neck so we could individually count each wound. And uh, it was 20, 28 in the neck and... 23 in the chest. Oh my God. I don't know how a human metabolizes the stuff that you see on a regular basis. And like, when you say an autopsy isn't fun, have you ever gone into an autopsy and felt ill physically, you know? I'm remembering one right off the top it's, of my well, head. Well, yeah. I mean, it's the odors and the sounds that you hear. Mm. Nobody likes going to the dentist, right? Yeah. Well, there are certain tools that they use in an autopsy that remind you of that. And it's it's unpleasant. Uh, and then the odors are. But you're still unpleasant is like a stoic dis- like way to describe that. Do you ever have a moment where you feel far from stoic? Like, Do you just, ever have to excuse yourself? Well, yeah. I always walk away when they start with the bone saw. Okay. I go to the other side because I don't want to listen to it. And uh-huh. I don't want to even have the occasion to glance over and look. Right. So I just walk around the curtain fair. and then when they're, when I hear the bone saw turn off, I come back around and I'm, and I'm good. You just said sentences that nobody. It's just unimaginable. <laughs> I mean, when you realize that what you guys, that your actual regular job is to deal with the worst of humanity every single day. Yeah. It becomes your new normal. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to learn how to process it or, uh, that's why there's a high turnover rate in this in this job too. Sure. I think that figuring out a good release or a good way to vent and decompress from all this is is healthy. Hey small town fam, it's Yardley. It's going to be summer soon, so the potential for stinky pits is imminent. That's why I really love Lumi. I'm obsessed with their sweat control, cream deodorant. I think I've said this so many times, but honest to God, I never thought I'd use a cream deodorant because they're sloppy and gloppy and sticky and bleh. But Lumi isn't any of those things. It dries quickly, it's never sticky, and it doesn't leave any white streaks on my dark clothing. So all of those things are a win for me. If you're not familiar with Lumi, let me tell you a few things. Six years ago, an OBGYN invented her game-changing whole body deodorant, and now it has over 300,000 five-star reviews from people like me. Lumi is baking soda-free, paraben-free, and pH balanced, so it's safe for your pits and your bits, which means you can use it below the belt. 
They have a lovely variety of fresh, bright scents like clean tangerine, my favorite, lavender sage, or toasted coconut. And the secret to Lumi's success is it's formulated and powered by mandelic acid. That's how it stops odor before it starts. So, small town fam, Lumi's starter pack is perfect for new customers. It comes with a solid stick deodorant, cream tube deodorant, my fave, and two free products of your choice, like mini body wash or deodorant wipes, and free shipping. And on top of that, as a special offer for listeners, new customers get 15% off all Lumi products with our exclusive code, which is small town. And if you combine the 15% off with the already discounted starter pack, that equals over 40% off the starter pack. So use code small town for 15% off your first purchase at lumideodorant.com. That's code small town at L-U-M-E deodorant.com. Do it. Hey, small town fam, it's Yardley. I want to talk about Pros. Pros is the custom hair and skin beauty brand where you get on their website, answer a bunch of questions about where you live and how old you are, what kind of hair you have, what kind of hair you want to have. And then from millions of possible formulas, they create a formula just for you. So I'm lucky I have a lot of hair. Most days, my hair is the boss of me. So I need shampoo and conditioner that gets my hair to calm down a little bit. So I've been using Pros for a while, and one of my favorite things about it is you can choose your scent. They have a review and refine tool, which learns from my feedback and then adjusts the formula. Also, Pros is a certified B Corp. It's cruelty-free, and it's the first and only carbon-neutral custom beauty brand. So it's not only better for you, it's better for the planet. So, small town fam, Pros is so confident that you'll bring out your best hair and skin that they're offering an exclusive trial of 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash town. That's right. You get your free consultation and then 50% off at pros.com slash town. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash town. Do it. Hey folks, Detective Dave here. Let me tell you about Simply Safe, the home security system that I trust to keep my family safe. I depend on Simply Safe to provide me and my loved ones with 360 degree coverage of my property and valuables. I love the variety of monitoring sensors available with Simply Safe Home Security. You get a glass break sensor, which in my experience is one of the most effective tools of detecting a break in. In addition, Simply Safe offers motion sensors, entry sensors, sirens, and flood and fire detection. With Simply Safe Home Security, I have the flexibility to use keypads at multiple entries at my house. This option is especially important to me and my family. I can provide access to people I trust and limit having multiple keys outside of my control, all at the push of a button via the Simply Safe app. It comes with a variety of cameras for indoors and outdoors. And best of all, Simply Safe is backed by 24-7 professional monitoring for less than $1 a day. It gives me peace of mind knowing I can leave the house, I can leave town, I can even leave the country, and I know my home is simply safe. The mobile app integration makes it so easy to make sure everything's in place in real time. 
I check it every day when I'm away from home. Simply Safe is the best. U.S. News and World Report named Simply Safe Best Home Security Systems 2024. And Newsweek ranked it Best Customer Service in Home Security. With Simply Safe, there are no contracts. And if you're not happy with the service or the product, they have a 60 day money back guarantee. Simply Safe has given me and many of our listeners real peace of mind. We want you to have it too. Right now, get 20% off any new Simply Safe system with Fast Protect monitoring at simplysafe.com/smalltown. That's simplysafe.com/smalltown. There's no safe like Simply Safe. What's the autopsy that you remember uh, making you either want to leave the room or like, ugh, that was not a good? We get a call of a woman that we had done previous welfare checks on. Uh, she was known in this little neighborhood as being the woman that was kind of a hermit, didn't come outside very often. Her yard was, uh, was I was there. You were there for part of that. Yeah. Oh, man, this is bad. She had a lot of cats. She had a lot of cats. So... Uh, she didn't take care of her yard, her windows. I remember years prior to her death, I'd done a welfare check at her house and there were flies everywhere inside, trapped inside. In this instance, we had so many officers outside asking, why are the curtains moving? They're not curtains. Those yeah, are flies. flies. Oh my God. Thousands Guys. of flies. And so the condensation on the inside of windows had turned to mold. So you can't even see into the house, you can see, you know, it's opaque, so you can kind of see movement. Uh, but we did a welfare check on this woman that day, and she actually answered the door and said, no, I'm fine. I just don't leave my house very often. You need anything? No, nope. she wanted nothing to do with us and kind of closed the door in our face. Okay. So years later, um, Dan was there that day. Uh, a couple of us get called out to assist. I got sent to the welfare check. Right. So he actually is with the team that discovers uh, this woman who was uh, obese, had a lot of cats. Like, Yeah, she's a cat so lady. So she was the cat lady. Yeah. yeah. The thing about this call that uh, I never actually saw her because when we got to the front door, I tried to open it and you could tell, you could smell an odor, which is unmistakable to police and firefighters. There's an odor of death. And I smelled it. Open the door, the front door, and it's, I can only get it open like six, eight inches without really, really forcing the door. But when I open the door and I look into the house, it looks like the ceiling is melting. Ew. What do you mean by that? Uh, to describe it, the, the paint has separated from the ceiling and is bubbling and literally looks like it's dripping down from the ceiling. Like when you make a dribble castle on the beach with wet sand, but upside down? Yes. I've never done that for the record. <laughs> well, dribble castle. You haven't lived. Um, <laughs> elsewhere in the house, I'm looking at the furniture and the furniture is obviously a different color or hue of that color than it was probably intended to be. And it, it's not just wear and tear or age. It's whatever is in the air in that house, uh, bacteria, mold, uh, coupled with what the cats are doing because they can't get out, is attacking whatever material is in that house. And 
turning it different colors. That's like a science fiction movie. Yeah. And one look at it, I knew that I couldn't go in there and stay healthy. Without the proper equipment. Yeah. Mask, the paper suit. The paper suit. Firefighters. That's what firefighters are for. So we called the fire department. The fire department put all their gear on, respirators and everything, and they went in and they, and they confirmed what I think we already knew. What you smelled. <laughs> yes. She was deceased in the back part of the house. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were cats everywhere. What was blocking the door that you couldn't get in? The whole house was the kitty litter box. So I'm not exaggerating at all when I say there was 18 to 24 inches of cat feces waste throughout the whole house with little rabbit trails that lead to each room. Uh, uh. The bathroom was full of garbage and clothing stacked as high as the curtain rod. I mean, there's... This is worse than any hoarders TV episode. I can't do it justice without even, you know, showing you a video of us walking through this house. But the woman was found in the back uh, corner bedroom which is a bedroom that's full, so full of clothing that the clothing is piled up. It was, you know, ceilings are eight feet, eight to nine feet tall. Clothing is stacked up at least six feet high, so there's three feet of clearance. And it's just a mountain of clothing so far that her bed was basically the slope of this clothing pile. Who has that much clothing? Well, you might. <laughs> I have a lot of clothes, but I don't think closet. I did a- Yeah. All right. All right. So (laughs) she's just laying face down in this pile of clothing and there's ants walking on her. And I I don't I don't know how gory you want to be. Go ahead and tell him, Dave. Uh, There was another detective who came in. We both suited up, put like rubber covers over our, our shoes, put the whole suit on, put the masks on. The paper suit. I feel like a paper suit wouldn't even do anything in this case. There's no amount of dry cleaning that can get that smell out. Oh, oh. I wonder if you tried Febreze, if that would work. Yeah. If Febreze was able to battle that, then I'd buy <laughs> stock in Febreze. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, we finally get to this woman. We start kind of looking around, seeing if there's any, I mean, you go into a house like that, where do you determine whether or not there was foul play? You know, there's it's, it's a hoarder's house. So if you've watched... The show Hoarders, uh, that's yes. what it looks like. But there's tons and tons of cat waste. And at one point, one of our, our detective overturns a, a chair. And you've seen Christmas Vacation, the Griswolds, where the cat is, yes. you know, in a, you know, spread out. Like Superman. Electrocuted on the bottom side of the chair. There's a cat that <gasps> is paper thin, petrified, and spread out like it, kind of that. Dead? Dead. Yeah. Just a dead cat in the house. DRT. Dead right there. That's got to be a cop term. What was the cause of death of the woman and what about the autopsy that just made you... There was no determination. It just died of natural causes. She just died right where she was laying and went undiscovered for a couple of weeks. Oh, how sad. This is the only scene in my 10 plus years where I have gotten nauseous like to the point where I thought I was going to gag. And it was when I went to pick this woman up with the medical examiner and the other detective. The wave of odor that hit me, I had to turn and jog out <laughs> of the house. And Dad, you had a, um, a fascinating tidbit, a little conversation snippet with the fireman. 
Yeah. When I was, uh, I think Dave was suiting up and everything and the fire guys were still there and, and we have a pretty good relationship with those guys. Um, they help us out. We help them out. And, uh, so I know them all and I'm talking to one of them and I said, so, you know, like a house like this, is this one that you guys would use as a, a burn and learn, which is, you know, some of these old, uh, old buildings, they'll burn them down so that they can use them for training. Oh, I see. Uh, and he said, no, we, there's no way we could do that. We get the whole neighborhood sick. Why? Because of all the mold and excrement? Yeah, it's, it's basically a house full of disease. Ew. What about the cats? Yeah, what happened to Here's the cats? I remember, so there was a couple of cats that were running wild inside, and I'm thinking, they just want out, right? We opened the door hoping to... Two things, air it out and give these cats their first breath of fresh air and who knows how long. Free the kitties. And the cats would just go to the threshold and wouldn't step outside. They're just standing right at the edge of the door looking really? outside. I kind of get that. The cats would never go outside. They ended up getting getting rescued by our animal control officer and they all got adopted out. So Hallelujah. happy ending there. Uh, as far as the autopsy goes, something I'll never forget is when they do an autopsy, they initially do an external. So they look at the body from head to toe, front and back. Uh, at some point, the medical examiner will do what's called a Y incision. It's from each uh, shoulder down to about the middle of the chest between the nipples and then down the stomach towards the uh, pubic region. And um, that gives the the medical examiner access to the chest plate to open up the body and, and check uh, the internal organs. In this case, the woman was so bloated from the gas and decomposition that he had to kind of... I, I stood back no less than 20 feet because I knew at some point there's going to be, this gas is going to escape and I don't want to be anywhere near where I'm going to get splashed with something. And I remember the doctor had made the whole Y incision and then he still had to nick the, the stomach cavity to open up. I'm probably using the terms wrong, but he has to make one last slice and he just kind of, while wincing, like getting ready for what's to come, nicks that last uh, area of tissue and... You could see the gas you could see being it. expelled from her her body, from her torso. And about two seconds later, the odor hits you. And oh, I'm for like, the love of God. There's not enough lavender in the world to solve this one. Wow. You just had to sit through it. She actually died of natural causes. Were there any bugs inside her? There was ants and stuff. Um, I've seen maggots in autopsies, but I don't, I don't specifically recall whether or not she had maggots. Um, I didn't stay for the whole autopsy either. My God. Wow. So we were talking about Eric and Cindy. Did that case ever go to trial? In all these murder cases, you expect to go to trial because the stakes are high. In this case, uh, we had heard through the district attorney's office that, um, his defense team was planning on raising the extreme emotional disturbance defense. Eric actually was accountable and refused to participate in that defense. Really? And he wished, uh, his desire was to plead guilty and take 25 to life, and that's what he ended up doing. So basically he's saying, I was not, there's no other reason for why I did this. I knew what I was doing, and that's the end of the story. Right. Yeah. 
After we recorded this episode, we had an opportunity to get in touch with Dawn, who is the dispatcher and the voice you hear on the 911 call once the call is transferred. And she's here to talk to us today about taking that particular call. Welcome, Dawn. Thank you. Before you tell us what you're thinking when you get that call, I think most people are under the impression that when they call 911, they get one operator, but that's not actually how it works. So take us through that. So in a lot of small towns, um, what'll happen is there's a one place that 911 phone calls go to. It's oftentimes the county that has that. It can be different, different places. And then we're considered a secondary PSAP. So the 911 center is primary. So as a secondary PSAP, they just transfer us only police calls that are in our jurisdiction. So when the calls come in, there's a they start a computer entry, which puts the address, It puts they'll put the person's name and the phone number that it came from, and usually just a gist about what the call is, and then they'll title it something. I like, I'm pretty, pretty sure in this one, it came in either as a stab or, or um, a dispute, but probably a stab wound. So when we get those kind of calls, we'll look at it right away because we have it transferred by computer. We'll pull up the call, and as soon as I see stab, it's it's like, well, you know, we, stab wound, whatever. Um, but then the next detail, if I remember right, says something about he said he stabbed her to death or stabbed her and she's not conscious. There's some part in there that I'm like, well, okay, that's different. And then the next line is the knife is in the kitchen sink. So it's like you're picking up in the middle of a conversation. So we have to be sort of prepared for, okay, what is it I really want to ask next? Meanwhile, my coworker is dispatching officers right away. So you don't hear that part, but there'll be there's parts where I'm talking to my coworker. On your end, are you just sitting at a desk waiting for these calls to come in? And when that call transfer comes up on your computer, does it come up on everybody's computer? Is it I don't know how many people are there. It's a small town. Is it, are you randomly selected? And do you kind of go, hope, got one, got a crazy thing. And do people rush over? Like I'm trying to picture what the scene is physically. Um, It's two dispatchers usually working. And then our sergeant generally is in the office, but not always. And then we may have a records clerk or two that works out in the front office area. On a 911 call, it does go to all the computers, um, but it it doesn't, it's our responsibility to send the call out to the officers. And with the system we have, you can go ahead and dispatch officers to it, and it'll come up on their computer. It shows them the address that they're going to. And they can read the details also, but if they're driving really fast, I don't know. Some people are really Driving good at and reading, it. I don't know. It yeah. sounds like a, a These, dicey proposition. The smart people can do it. <laughs> so, Dave. Yeah, David. <laughs> I, want it, I want it noted she pointed at me. Both of them. <laughs> so Zibby singled you out. Well, basically, by omission, singled me out. <laughs> Correct. So, do you notice when different dispatcher teams are on duty? And without naming names, do you have your favorites? Yeah. When you're an officer on that shift, you know when you have a good team going too, because things just happen to work smoother. Mm. Officers really appreciate it. When you when you have great dispatchers, it makes your job so much easier. We try to anticipate what they might want next. You know, that not always, but there's moments where I'm trying to think ahead of where they are. Like if they're driving to a call, you know, they need to know where to go in the complex. If they're going to a, a situation, how many people are actually there? Are they going to have to control more than just the person who's the suspect? Is there, that's, I'm always worried that they're going to get there have one bad scene and then have additional bad scenes around them. So it's important to sort of 
pull back a little bit to say how many people are there, you know, I don't want you to get ambushed. <laughs> I'm yeah. always worried that this is like a trick. I would not have thought of, of that aspect, you know, that, that you're having, you know, you're sending people to the scene that you're hearing about. You must feel like you want to send them into a situation armed with as much information as possible. Exactly. In a small town compared to a big city, do you have a relationship with all of the officers? Oh, definitely. I, I would say probably the biggest advantage that we have and have always had over, and, and this is totally my opinion, but um, is the teamwork and camaraderie. We go and we see the officers, we go to a briefing with them. I know all, all about their personal lives, not like to be invasive, but to, you know, like supportive friendship kind of thing. Um, we can tell like somebody hasn't had enough sleep. We try to go easier on that person if they, you know, like they just have a brand new baby. There's just different pieces of the puzzle that can influence what happens for them in their day. And so, you know, if sometimes people are snippy and you can forgive that if you understand they just had a really rough day. You know, this has been, this is a tough call. Some calls are more difficult for off, different officers, especially if they have new kids. It never seems to fail that an officer will have a new kid and then we get the baby call and they're the officer that goes. And that's heart-wrenching to know that unfortunately I have to send you. I mean, it's one of those moments of like, I'm really sorry, but I have nobody else. And um, and feeling the compassion afterward to, to say to them, are you okay? I, you know, that was tough. I, it, it's a rough world and we're here. We, we were with you when we heard the call, tell us what happened next. Share with what, what you're feeling about it. And, and not in a, I want to judge you, hold your hand or anything, but I just want to share the experience because I was there for this part and we get that complete story. So we continue that teamwork. So it just builds on itself. I mean, once you have a camaraderie, it just each call, each case, you know, each funny thing, because we tend to make things funny that aren't. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> that seems fair. <laughs> you know, we have the gallows humor and the the normal things, but it just builds a better team. And that's what keeps me coming back. That's why I do love where I work. I love what we do. Um, you know, the day-to-day -day grind is not fun and the overtime and the shift work. and But those moments when everything clicks and we can be there for each other and we're a team are so phenomenal. I don't... I've never had anything like that ever anywhere else. And so 23 years later, I'm still hooked. <laughs> it's beautiful. I remember Dan was saying um, that you can tell by the tone of his voice that something is not right. Yep. Right, Dan? Both of them. I mean, most officers, I can get that. But with these two in particular, I don't know if just because I know them, they, they're a little more open than some people are. And that, that's a good thing, I think. I can tell almost what they're thinking sometimes. And so it's not, it's, I'm usually not surprised by whatever happens next. You know, if Dave says, I need a cover unit, he'll have a certain tone and it'll be like, oh dear. And Dan and Dave never would ask for cover units unless it was really like important. And there's a whole bunch of officers that that's not true. They'll just send, send me a second. And then you find out, oh, because the guy wouldn't give you his wallet at first. The difference between somebody who really needs another unit there and probably is going to need two is significantly different from the, oh my gosh, I'm a new cop and they're not giving me the wallet. Right. right. Wow. Okay, so getting back to this call that you get from Eric saying he stabbed his girlfriend, when you get that call and you see what's come up on your screen, what goes through your mind? And how trained are you to handle circumstances like that? I mean, at this point, you had been a dispatcher for 
since 98. I'd been records the since 94. Yeah. So a little while you had a lot of experience under your belt at that point. It's it, um, the most important, it's always officer safety and then how to get there. It's, you know, where is the crime at? And then it, to me, it's just how quickly can we get them there and get this guy out of the scene? Cause he's clearly trying to, he wants to change his clothes. He wants to alter some things. Um, and he's talking, which is, and he's so calm. I, there's a there's a moment where I actually didn't really believe what it was until and you'll hear me kind of do the <laughs> take a deep breath because I realize oh he's for real and I'm trying to come up with what to say next because I'm still processing oh gosh he really did kill her and he is telling us that he killed her um, and that I've had one other call that was like this and it was the same demeanor the same absolutely just yeah I shot him yeah that's what I did do you think that's shock. I don't know. This woman had shot an intruder that had come into our apartment. And when we got the call, it just, it didn't, I was new too. Um, she was just uh, completely like, yeah, he tried to break in. So I shot. Well, I think Dave touched on it Yeah. before about the emotional event is the act. After that, they can detach themselves from it. They're coming down. Yeah, they're coming down. So that they're calm sense. now. That The emotional part of it is is over with for them. Right. It's, right. I never thought of that until you'd said it. Yeah, Don, you're so calm and composed on this call with Eric, and I, we can hear you typing. So you're multitasking here. You're telling your coworker that officers need to be just dispatched. You're typing, and you're talking to this guy who's telling you this incredible information. When that call is done. Do you have a moment of decompression or oh, yeah. is it just business as usual and you're like, okay, what's the next call? Decompression for sure. We usually call it Tourette's. <laughs> 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 There'll be explosive swear words for a moment. Usually like, you know, the keyboard and spin around to look at my coworker. What the fuck was that? Who does that? And then spin back around. It's business time. And, you know, uh, I think part of the most challenging things that I've come across is when we've had, this wasn't to me a super emotional call. It just went really easy. We've had other calls where it was much more, um, I've taken other calls where it's much more heightened and the crime and the, the killing is happening as we're on the phone. And those are a little bit more um so you get done with that call done, like you're done off the phone part of the call. And then the next night when one call comes in and that's the one that I'm like, whoa, okay. Back to the prowler call or the dispute call with the man and wife who can't get along or, you know, the mundane traffic hazard or whatever it is. That's the moment where it's kind of like, I, okay, switching gears now. <laughs> right. You know, it, it's because we've had so many conversations with the detectives and other officers we've spoken to who, for them, their closure comes when they sort of see the whole thing through, you know, yeah, the arrest, but even after that, the conviction and the sentencing. Right. And what's the closure for you? I mean, how do you move from call to call? Like you described just now, you're taking a phone call where it's heightened, there's hysteria, a killing's happening live and over the phone. Yeah. You just put it away and have to deal with it later. And clearly there's times that um, I've been better at dealing with it later. Um, and there's times where I haven't. And, and there's a bunch of us who are the same call I was thinking of. There's a whole group of officers who are no longer officers who put it away and they didn't deal with it. And that's, I think we, you can see like, oh, from that point forward, this person declined. And, you know, maybe it's me oversimplifying somebody's reaction, but it does seem to correlate that if you don't deal with it, it'll deal with you. 
Small Town Dicks is produced by Zibby Allen and Yardley Smith for Paperclip Limited, with editing from Logan Heftel, Billy Florio, Yardley, and Zibby. Music for the show was composed by John Forrest. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever else you like to listen to your podcasts. And follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Small Town Dicks. Also, visit our website, smalltowndicks.com, for more information and to leave questions and comments for the team.